0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, The Interlude We Became.
1: We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it.
0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, The Interlude We Became, Episode 6. Let's show this bench how we do things downtown. This week, we wrap up our expedition to the Lovecraftian magical realist version of New York from N.K. Jemisin's The City We Became. In this episode, we're going to be concluding the multiversal adventures of the avatars of New York City with chapters 14 through the end of the book.
1: All right. You know the drill. Before we get into it, let's talk about all of the stuff that you're probably going to skip. So let's get the content warning out of the way. While this book is a lot of fun, it features frank discussions of race, gender, and sexuality in contemporary America from the perspective of marginalized communities. It is important stuff, and it is worth learning about. It also uses what I'm... uh, This is not my line. This is your line.
0: It also uses what famed Premier League broadcaster Arlo White would refer to as fruity language. If you can handle that, we hope you'll give it a listen.
1: You wrote that specifically... Because it was your thing. How rough. How rough. Anyway. As always, we assume that you have either read the associated passage, or at least don't mind lots of spoilers. This is the end of the book. If you don't want to know what happens, why are you listening to this? So, spoilers. The. Naturally, we also want you to be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Finally... We are in no way affiliated with N.K. Jemison or her publisher, Orbit Books. With all that bookkeeping out of the way, let's dive in.
0: All right. So we start with chapter 14, which is the gauntlet of Second Avenue. And this chapter takes the form of a chase scene with Hong and Brooklyn and Bronca and Padmini driving manically through the streets of New York trying to get to Staten Island.
1: You know what it actually feels like more to me? An obstacle course.
0: Yeah, I can buy that. In this case, most of the obstacles take the form of living Starbucks buildings.
1: Right, because while Starbucks has been in New York for roughly ever, it is also an international presence. It takes away from the uniqueness of
0: New York. One of the things that this really reminded me of was the movie The World's End by Edgar Wright. Such a good movie. Love that movie. Give it a watch if you have a chance. One of the themes that they go on about is Starbucking, where it's not just Starbucks. It's all of the smaller businesses that come in that imitate its bland, homogenous exterior, hoping to cater to a wealthy, mostly white clientele. Honestly, we should watch that. Yeah. I haven't watched it in a while. But yeah, I think that this is a good example of that because we see it's not just Starbucks. It's also some of these smaller chains as well, like the Au Bon Pan. Right.
1: There's that. But there's also like Dunkin'. I guess they call it Dunkin' Donuts, but I guess it's Dunkin' now. I don't know. I think because we grew up in the Pacific Northwest, I only knew of like one or two Dunkin' Donuts. And it wasn't a thing. Like, it wasn't a place you go for coffee. It really wasn't a Starbucks imitator with donuts. It was just a donut shop when I was a kid. And I say that knowing that I just turned 40, and that makes me sound super freaking
0: old. Well, yeah, because I remember there was one Dunkin' that I knew about, and that was in this rundown strip mall in Factoria. (laughs)
1: There was one that I knew of, and it was in Kenmore. Neither of these places or what I would call catering to wealthy people.
0: Not in those days anyway. No. There's a couple other things that we see here as well. So we get to see Bronca and Brooklyn really come to an understanding over their past transgressions.
1: There is allegations of homophobia and playing up a violent rhetoric to appeal to the wrong sorts of people and brooklyn kind of trying to hide under the air that non-white people all should know that anything that is said in a rap song is played up or false or exaggerated or going along to get along with the rest of the rap community i don't know
0: i think what she is saying she's explaining her motives. I don't think she believes that it excuses them, however.
1: But it sounds like to Bronca's ears that she is excusing herself, trying to say, but everyone else was doing it.
0: Here's where I actually see the difference. Brooklyn actually takes some ownership for what she did and what she said back in the day. She acknowledges that what she said was wrong and... She makes a point about how she tries to do better. She also talks about how it hurts her when people make assumptions that she lost people to drugs. Even though she did, she doesn't like that people assume that. Just because she is rapping about the urban experience.
1: I think what hurts worse is that this judgmental BS is coming from Bronca, who herself is not white, who herself had to deal with her community members struggling with drug addiction. And Brooklyn feels like Bronca should have more empathy towards her. And so that defensive nature comes back roaring, especially because she felt like they were, in theory, supposed to be allies. And she's feeling attacked.
0: Solidarity is important, but it's not easy, is what I read out of this. It requires people to be vulnerable and to admit mistakes. A lot of what I'm seeing in Brooklyn actually reminds me a lot of the period that the Beastie Boys went through. For a long time, everyone thought of them based on the image that Rick Rubin came up with for the License to Ill album, which is essentially just fight for your right to party and no sleep till Brooklyn. You know, these real frat boy antics that really ended up tarnishing their image for a long time. You know, there's a lot of misogyny and there's a lot of homophobia. There's a lot of just general crassness that if you look at later period interviews with them, you can tell that they aren't really proud of it. They're not proud of who they were. They're not proud of the songs they wrote. It's a tough thing to happen. And, you know, in the era of online music where all of your music is equally available all the time. It functions as this living record of who exactly you were and the difference between who you were and who you are may not be readily apparent because you don't listen to music in the context of when it's released anymore. It's all just happening right now. So if you hear Ad-Rock say something mean and something crass in License to Ill, it's as if he said it yesterday if you're just listening to it on Spotify or whatever.
1: I would say that the same thing is true about nearly any public figure. I think back catalogs of music is an easier thing to revisit. However, you can find things that our current president said in 1970, whatever the heck, and assume that he has had absolutely no growth in the 40-plus years since he said that.
0: I agree. I think really what makes Brooklyn's case here work is she drops the politician element and she just responds with her own genuine sorrow and remorse. And I think that's what puts Bronca at ease and helps them to mend their fences a bit because they are actually really strong allies for one another. And they're two of my favorite characters in this book.
1: Do you have an absolute favorite character?
0: Well, I mean, there's Vinita, but...
1: (laughs) I really love her too. I love most of our protagonists. I find them all to be likable in ways that are not always perfect, but I think my favorite of them is New York.
0: He's awesome.
1: Like, we don't get a lot of New York, like the avatar of New York. Hell, we don't even actually know his name. But he's hilarious.
0: Yeah, he's always got the right comeback at the right time. He He's a lot of fun. So the other thing that we see here is the way that astroturfed white grievance politics plays a role not in trying to advance an agenda, but just trying to stop progress. Like in this case, we have this great big white supremacist march that is a whole bunch of MRA types talking about, it's not wrong to be a white man. Oh, dear out at midnight on the FDR just to gum up traffic to prevent the avatars from getting through to Staten Island.
1: I've driven through major metropolitan cities at midnight or later. And honestly, like I get that New York is more densely packed, but it's probably not stop traffic at all costs densely packed at midnight. Like town cars and taxis exist. But like my experience of going through Portland at midnight or going through Seattle, by that point, traffic moves where, you know, a couple hours earlier, it was probably gridlocked.
0: Yeah, it's definitely something that takes some doing. And it only happens if you're able to cut off a bridge just by causing an obstruction.
1: It kind of reminds me a little bit, not in the malevolent way. But during Seafair, they shut down the 520 bridge, which connects the Redmond and Bellevue area, which is kind of where Microsoft is, if anyone outside of the Pacific Northwest wants to know, to Seattle proper. And I've walked on to this five-lane bridge, highway, four lane, five lane, It's seven.
0: five, I think it's six.
1: Might be six. This rather large highway.
0: Actually, I think it's eight after the expansion.
1: Fair enough. I don't remember at the time with my coworkers, we just walked out there and watched as the Blue Angels went by. And I know why they shut down the bridge. It's because there is a slight danger that something bad will happen with the aerial show above. But I think there might be even more people on the damn bridge (laughs) at that point. But like, there is something that feels very weird about walking in a place that usually only cars
0: are. Yeah, it's not a pedestrian area and you only go on there on foot if you're either A, you know the whole thing's closed down or B, you want it to be closed down. Again, all of this is just building off of this manufactured grievance politics.
1: I'm going to say this right now. There is absolutely nothing wrong with being white or male or cis or straight. But y'all are the majority. Yeah. (laughs) I'm looking at one.
0: Yeah. I have no shame about the genetics I was born with. I didn't choose any of that. However, I also know that a lot of people who look like me and who are otherwise genetically similar to me have made the world a much worse place.
1: Also, who are relatively privileged like you.
0: Yep. And I know that I wield a lot of privilege, a disproportionate amount that I did nothing to earn. I don't have any inherent goodness that makes me worthy of this. So... What I've got, I should be making sure that I'm using it wisely and kindly to help those in need.
1: I mean, I am a straight-passing, white, female-passing person. I also have a very large amount of inherent privilege. It really comes down to how you use it and whether or not you can recognize that it exists. And I think, if I'm going to look at it honestly... Most people who rail the loudest about how they're being targeted by things like reverse racism or reverse sexism, there is no such thing as either of those. They understand why there is no such thing as straight pride. They understand why you can't claim whiteness as a culture. They really do get it. I get it. You get it. Yep. They're not that stupid. They're just
0: that benchy. So another thing that we see here is that anytime the avatars do something that is particularly New Yorky, that's how they're able to activate their avatar powers. They create these constructs kind of like Green Lantern would do. In this case, when Bronca decides to drive like a New Yorker, this becomes this expression of local pride and power. So by that, what I mean is someone who treats things like speed limits and traffic safety laws more as suggestions that can be ignored <laughs> and thrown out the window at convenience.
1: And also uses fruity language to describe their fellow motorists.
0: We even see Hong Kong get in on the act. He seems to be enjoying it.
1: I gotta say, though, almost kind of shaming Padmini for not driving. A, correct me if I'm wrong, she came from over in India. She's not native born to the United States.
0: Correct. She moved to the United States. If you are familiar with traffic in India and driving in India, it is very different from how it works over here. The business of learning to drive in the United States requires unlearning all of these terrible habits that they developed as survival mechanisms just to drive. There is no such thing as right of way. It is just whoever gets there first, whoever is assertive enough, and then that's it. There are constant massive traffic jams. Like my buddies in Hyderabad, would routinely have to deal with late night like traffic was bad at all hours of the night like there was no off hours time where traffic was good
1: i assume that some of that has to do with india being a popular destination for round the clock call centers and round the clock working
0: yeah It is very popular as an after-hour support destination. There are a lot of people who do work the night shift. And a large part of that is also because it is so intensely hot during the day that being out and about late at night is one of the few times where it can be bearable. There is a lot there. So that Padmini doesn't drive is not necessarily an indictment of her.
1: No, and I... Sympathize with her not wanting to have to unlearn and relearn that while she is also going to school. And when in New York, you don't have to drive.
0: Yeah. New York is a city that is built around public transit between buses and subways and taxis.
1: It's one of the few in the United States where it is not only viable, but expected that you would take public transit.
0: And it is something that people of all socioeconomic strata do. We also get a little bit of, even as Bronca doesn't particularly like Padmini, I think she thinks Padmini is a little naive. There's also sort of a little sister element here (laughs) where, like, I can make fun of her, I can pick on her, but nobody else can.
1: (laughs) Right. I feel like there's almost a parental aspect I think that you're more correct with the older sister aspect because she seems to feel protective of all of the Burrows in a way that is not quite motherly because it's not that dynamic. But in that, y'all are full of shit, but I love you anyway.
0: Exactly. And it's her place to be able to call them out as the eldest. But at the same time, she also knows that If anybody comes after any of them, oh, she'll take a bullet for them and probably put somebody else in the ground. So when they finally arrive at their destination on Staten Island, who should they finally meet but the woman in white who turns out to be an avatar herself.
1: Of a city that should strike fear into the heart of anyone that hears the name
0: yeah. I love the description of this is the city that never sleeps facing off against the city where nightmares dare not tread. I love it. I think that's a great little evocative line there and it really also just spells out how epic all of this is. Like it really does take some of that evocative language that Lovecraft used that makes for great horror fiction and then uses it in service of a far more progressive story than Lovecraft could ever dream of.
1: So as someone, admittedly, who hasn't read much Lovecraft, can you do a little more description than what would be in the public zeitgeist, just so that anyone that is following along with this and doesn't know might get a little more context?
0: So Lovecraft oftentimes spent a lot of time trying to describe the undescribable. So he would use things like disturbingly non-Euclidean geometry, which is something we'll see referenced here with the angles that don't work right. I mean, it's kind of hilarious if you know anything about math since we've been using non-Euclidean geometry for a long time.
1: But it sounds cool and scientific.
0: It does. He also uses words like squamish and gibbering to describe these otherworldly horrors and these beings whose motives are fundamentally unknowable.
1: Those words sound like they belong in Alice in Wonderland or Alice Through the Looking Glass and the Jabberwocky.
0: They kind of are. They're the flip side of that absurdism. As far as Lovecraft is concerned, All of these beings inhabit a world so far beyond our understanding that the mere glimpsing of them is enough to drive someone mad. So a creature like Cthulhu, who is probably his most famous creation, is absolutely hostile to humanity. But we don't really have a sense for what Cthulhu's goals are. Because Cthulhu is almost a force of nature. These elder gods have their motives that have nothing to do with humanity, and they give humanity about as much consideration as we might give to a colony of ants. They'll squash us without a second thought, they'll devour us, and they don't put any more thought into it than we might, you know, just making dinner. They don't even think about it at all. They don't care, fundamentally.
1: It's the same reason why... Once a mythical creature gets to kaiju level, you are no longer afraid of it.
0: Yeah, it'll kill me or not, but it's not going to try to kill me. It's not going to go out of its way to.
1: Because it doesn't care.
0: Yeah. I have a rule for those who are uninitiated. (laughs) When it comes to horror movies and monster movies, there is a certain size at which a monster ceases to be frightening to me. And that size is typically about the size of a medium-sized building. Like a house. Like a house, yeah. Once you have a monster that's reached house size, it has little motive to go trying to eat me because I'm not going to provide a whole lot of caloric energy. And at that point, it is more likely to kill me by accident than on purpose. And so really all I can do is stay out of the way, and if I do, it'll be fine. It's not going to go looking for me. Whereas anything smaller, it will hunt me with intent. And that's far more terrifying to me. It's why the T-Rex is not as scary to me as the velociraptors in Jurassic Park.
1: Except the T-Rex in the movies seems to still be intent on hurting humans.
0: Usually it's only after it's been provoked, though.
1: I would say, for me, the inevitable, I'm just going to get squished if I'm in the wrong spot, level is like Pacific Rim.
0: Yeah, the kaiju and Pacific Rim don't scare me.
1: The idea that a kaiju would step on me so fast that I couldn't get out of the way is really the only thing that's really frightening. You're more likely to die of shrapnel injuries than you are of anything that the kaiju is doing to you directly.
0: Pretty much. It's scary, but it isn't the sort of thing that just makes me go, oh, this is terrifying to me. But that's just me. I'm weird that way. I care about the monster's motivations.
1: I think, first of all, you're dead either way. But secondly, one of them feels inevitable and one of them feels malevolent. Yeah. We have straight off topic.
0: We really have. One of the other things that I note here is that Rillia uses Gandalf's you shall not pass line.
1: Yes. And then goes and says, I've always wanted to say that.
0: Which I think is a reference to the way that when you see a technology company named after something from Lord of the Rings, you know they're almost always some sort of white supremacist alt-right bullshit. Do you? Always? I can name several that are bad news.
1: But I think that some of them just start out as being nerds. And I don't think that Stephen Colbert is an awful, awful person. He loves Lord of the Rings.
0: Yeah, he also did name his production company after something from Lord of the Rings. But there is something about the way a lot of right-wing and white supremacist organizations have co-opted bits from Lord of the Rings to suit their worldviews, particularly as they refer to this sort of clash between the pure and virtuous and white West, and this sinister East.
1: That just feels so ooky. Stop taking things that I love and making them into something heinous, you stupid, stupid, stupid. Yeah,
0: there's some real jerks out there. Anyway, let's move on to chapter 15, And lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty. So this is one of our first chapters that actually has multiple settings at the same time. So first off, we have Manny and Madison and Sao Paulo searching for the primary avatar in the abandoned subway station. And so here we get a little bit about how those that would actually protect the city see what they need to see. So the people who are attuned to the city and its well-being give Manny and his allies a pass on whatever he needs them to. It's also part of Manny's power. Absolutely. A couple other things here that I noticed. When Sao Paulo gives Manny the warning about the threat that's coming their way, Manny's response is, Roger that which makes me think that maybe Manny's past isn't necessarily criminal, but perhaps military. Because that seems like a very straightforward militaristic response. And it would be something where someone who got used to hurting people might find a safe place.
1: So to speak. I'd like to note that this in particular highlights that there are people within policing and other authority, organizations that are on Manny's side, that are on New York's side. Not every single cop in the New York Police Department has been co-opted by the tendrils and not all of the supervisors. There are some who can still want what's best for the city and act towards it.
0: The catch is, though, they may not be able to remain so for long. And that's where I think a lot of times when we talk about bad apples, you see that rhetoric used a lot. And the problem with that is that oftentimes, people forget about the rest of that aphorism, which is that it only takes one bad apple to spoil the bunch. Which is to say that when you have a bad apple that is in your organization, and is allowed to remain in that organization without consequence or corrective action or anything like that, then regardless of how good everybody else in that organization is, if the organization is protecting them, they are complicit in that person's actions. So that bad apple has spoiled the bunch. So when we talk about this idea of good cops versus bad cops, When we see the way the systems have fundamentally protected the, quote, bad cops, it quickly becomes apparent that that distinction does not really matter. What you have is an organization that is fundamentally hostile to people of color because it protects people who are hostile to people of color.
1: I know that a lot of hateful organizations will co-opt this idea of But you have to be tolerant of everyone, and that includes me, even as I am intolerant of all y'all. The only way to have a welcoming safe space is to not tolerate the intolerable, the intolerant. Do not make a welcoming safe space for everyone. Make a welcoming safe space for those that would also engender a welcoming safe
0: space. In short... You don't need to tolerate people who will not engage in good faith in the social contract. So we also get a little bit of backstory on both Hong Kong and Sao Paulo here. And what we see is that they're both cities that bear the scars of imperialism. Hong Kong was a survivor of the opium wars. Which,
1: for those who don't know, was how many years ago?
0: About 200 years ago. Essentially what happened was the British decided that it was in their interest to turn China into an opium production mecca. They wanted to be able to use it for anesthetic for their war machine. And at the same time, they worked to make sure that the local populace was as addicted as possible so that they could be easily controlled. And when you had The boxer rebellions, the boxer armies were basically peasants who took up arms against the British and the opium lords, specifically to cast out foreigners from China to take back the control of their industries. And there's a reason why there is a great deal of suspicion towards people of European descent in China, because they have borne heavy scars culturally and politically over the generations as a result of that. And so there is an isolationist streak as a result. We also learned that Sao Paulo is also a survivor of class warfare because the US-backed military dictatorship decided that the solution to crime and poverty in the favelas of Brazilian cities was simply to bulldoze them. This is something that we oftentimes see in a lot of Brazilian politics, when you look at major events that come through, whether it's the Olympics or the World Cup, you know, all of these grand world events, the Brazilian government has historically been very ashamed of the living conditions that the vast majority of its population lives in. And so their solution has historically been just to try and bulldoze those shanty towns as best they can. And we find here that Sao Paulo, as the avatar of his city, objected to all of this and took up arms against the oppressors and then did battle with rocket launchers against the forces of Rilia. So I thought that was pretty cool there.
1: This mild-mannered, soft-spoken person that just turns out to be a massive...
0: hash. Yeah. He's... Sort of that sleeping dragon in many ways. He has the capability to kick Ash if he needs to, but he doesn't define himself by it. So, let's talk a little bit about some of the constructs of the avatars that they use here. Because we have this fight that goes down between Hong Kong and Brooklyn and Bronca and Padmini and then Rilia and Island, And we also see Manny's construct. So... First of all, we get Hong Kong using the red envelopes, which are a reference to Lunar New Year gifts. I've gotten
1: a couple of them from friends of mine, and it always makes me feel very, very special.
0: And so here we see Hong Kong is wielding it as a defense against the invader. We've also got Brooklyn taking her earrings off.
1: (laughs) Okay. As someone who has multiple ear piercings, getting an earring caught, or getting it ripped out, Uh uh-uh, not that it was ever me, but one of my roommates back when I lived in Medford had to get his ear reconstructed because he gauged it too fast.
0: Okay, let's not talk about this anymore because that hurts. Right.
1: So therefore, anything that could get caught and could rip out I've had one of my earrings caught by a comb by someone who was cutting my hair, and it just popped out the piece that holds it shut, which was in itself a pain in the butt to find and put back in. But the idea that someone could use that to harm me on purpose. The But she also takes off her sensible heels because who in the heck wants to fight in heels? Seriously, watch Jill Barup on YouTube because combat wedges are just not a thing.
0: Yes. We see Bronca's emblem is her steel-toed construction boots, and Padmini is doing math equations.
1: I kind of see her as the person in the meme that is just doing all the math equations, trying to like get the light bulb to go off.
0: A little bit, yeah. And then, of course, we've got for Manny, it's the subway. He has that connection to it. It's where he was born as an avatar. It was his first experience of being part of the city. And I think there's something really powerful in that for him. And then for Island, it's Nimbyism. Not
1: in my backyard.
0: <sighs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> it's literally her attack.
1: I know. Like, It's hilarious. I find it very funny, but I also find it so depressing. Yeah. I am glad though, that we don't have an instance of the good one in terms of like the good white person being kind of thrown into the mix. Yeah, we've got Madison, but Madison's a very bit character and it almost feels like she and the taxi are a character together. All uh, the taxi in Who Framed Roger Rabbit? A little bit.
0: She has a cameo and not much more. Yeah. I kind of feel like the thing that really drives Island firmly onto the woman in white's side is that all of the other avatars start almost immediately trying to tell her what to do. To bully her. Even if they aren't necessarily bullying her. Even if they're just saying, you need to do this. She has been told what to do for so long, and she's been conditioned to rebel against that at this point for so long that it's almost a reflexive rejection on her part. And all of these assumptions that all the other boroughs have about her, that she's kind of an idiot, that she's a little crazy, that she's racist, all of these things end up being self-fulfilling prophecies.
1: So there are certain things that she will take from her father that she will not take from other people. And that idea of being a crazy woman. Her weird... Forked up thought of how feminism works. Yeah. It <sighs> If your feminism isn't intersectional, I do not want it.
0: All you're doing is just propping up a different hierarchy. It also reveals that really when you are objecting to... Patriarchy, it's not that you're objecting to the concept of it. It's just that you're angry that you're not on top. Then we come back to the events underground, back in the subway. And
1: Manny and Sao Paulo have found the Avatar.
0: And they're at this point preparing to face off against a manifestation of Rilia.
1: Who is intent on killing the Avatar. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And the thing that gets me about this is it feels like it's almost a reverse Ghostbusters situation. Okay. So, like, Manny is sitting here trying to think, okay, what's the most New York-y thing I can think of right now? And I am just completely drawing a blank. (laughs) So, the only thing he can think of is King Kong. And he even says,
1: I need to watch better movies about New York.
0: (laughs) And it just reminds me of... Ray Stant saying, I thought of the one thing that could never hurt me, (laughs) the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. (laughs) (laughs) So, he ends up trouncing the invader because this is his home turf. But just that image is hilarious to me. He's like, I'm turning into a giant ape and I really got to come up with something better. (laughs) That's the playfulness that I love about this book. Like, there is a sense that, okay, we can have fun with all of this. It's serious stuff, but that doesn't mean we can't have fun.
1: I really do like the climax of this book. It feels action-packed. It's compelling. It makes me want to read further. It makes me want to finish the book. It's not too self-serious, even as a lot of the climax conflict is between the group of ragtag people of color versus the uppity white woman. It doesn't make me as a white person feel like all white people are being attacked or something. It makes me recognize how toxic that environment that she grew up in is. And the fact that she hasn't left it to find more information that could help shape her worldview into something much 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 more rounded and encompassing and accepting
0: yeah we know that island is a tragic figure she's not just a simple antagonist there is an element of pathos to who she is and there are reasons why she does what she does They're not always good reasons, but she is someone that we can recognize, and sometimes we pity her.
1: Like, when she realizes that Venetia is lying in not a cavern, but in a mouth. Yeah. And she gets just disgusted, and it kind of breaks her brain a bit. Like, I think the others are much more able to wrap their head around what they're seeing. And Aylan is so wrapped in her, what the world ought to be, that when she is confronted with something that isn't in that very narrow cone of ought to be, she can't handle it.
0: I think that her response there, because she does effectively rescue Venita from the mouth, there is a sense there that there is something that is redeemable to Eileen.
1: Right. She's not intending to cause harm. But because of her nature as someone who has lived with abuse for 30 years, seen it, had it perpetrated against her, and been told and conditioned to believe that that's just the way that things are. Sometimes people have to hurt you. Sometimes you have to hurt people. Sometimes that's just how things have to happen. And this acceptance of that rather heinous behavior from others. It just hammers home how much she is a tragic figure. But I don't think she herself wants to harm people. She just doesn't see a way where everyone can get out of a situation without being harmed
0: yeah i think for her she believes that her best chance of being safe and happy and healthy is to be alone and this is why her final wish is to just expel everyone who isn't the woman in white and her from the borough so that means she sends hong kong back to china
1: magic xenophobia is how it's described
0: yeah And she sends the rest of the boroughs back to the financial district.
1: Yay for calling out a landmark that so many tourists have experienced in New York. The bull.
0: That brings us to chapter 16. New York is who? And this is where all of the remaining avatars finally make their way down to where Manny is. They find Manny is naked, having turned into a giant gorilla.
1: Basically, he turned into the Hulk and then had to have some sort of decency shield in the form of Sao Paulo's jacket covering his lap.
0: A strategically placed article of clothing. Yeah. So at this point, all the avatars know that they all need to touch the primary. New York. But every time they try, they just hit an invisible wall. There's just not any way that they can push through it. And they need to have the final avatar.
1: And Staten Island is not gonna come be part of
0: the group. Even if Staten was willing, which pretty much isn't gonna happen, there's just simply not time. But guess who else is there? Venitza. Jersey City. And I love this idea here that living cities aren't defined by politics, city limits, or county lines. They're made of whatever the people who live in them and around them believe. You know, is from Jersey City and most people in New York aren't gonna say that that's part of New York. Everywhere else in the world, they can say, yeah, I'm from New York. And no one would bat an eye at it. Right. It's like
1: the way that we say that we're from Seattle. Or from Portland. Or from Portland right now.
0: Yeah, we're not within the city limits. We're in a different county. But we're still just as much a part of the culture and the local politics and all of the issues that the greater Portland metro area deals with.
1: Close enough. We are not... Embroiled in everything that makes Portland, Portland.
0: Right. We don't have some of the worst parts of Portland. That's true. We have a better garbage system. That's fair. But at any rate, when they all finally unite, when they're finally all able to touch the primary avatar, and the quote consuming that occurs is not the same as what they had originally feared.
1: It's not the same thing that Hong Kong described.
0: And I think what we're seeing here is the difference between a true syncretism versus sort of assimilation.
1: I would say that they melded a bit.
0: Right. There is a joining.
1: They became kind of that melting pot.
0: Except not quite. Because a melting... I'd actually like to get into that. So the melting pot is actually kind of a problematic metaphor
1: but it's a common one.
0: It is a very common one where we're using that to describe a whole bunch of different people from different backgrounds coming together to build something new. But the problem with the melting pot is that it erases all of the distinctiveness. It's basically the Borg collective where all of your distinctiveness is added to the greater collective good. Question though,
1: they did kind of become a collective where they can hear and experience each other's thoughts and actions
0: they do but it's a little bit different it's more like they're a voltron fair enough like they come together they are still distinctive in their own rights they still have their own wants needs fears they still think for themselves but they also have an awareness of the others within the collective and they can work together in solidarity with one another Individually, they're powerful, but when they Voltron up, the Voltron is far more powerful than the lion robots. That's how I look at it.
1: Regardless, Voltron New York beats the ever-loving crap
0: out of Rilia. I love how they take these sort of scary New York stereotypes and use them as ways to hunt down the agents of Rilia. So we've got packs of mini-limbed, faceless stockbrokers which I think is probably from Manny. It also kind
1: of, spoilers for the game Inside, but it reminds me of the conglomerate thing from the end of Inside.
0: Then we have these stick figure, stick up kids that are scarecrows dressed in knockoff Burberry who are sort of like that avatar of the street gang or whatever. That stereotype of the New York hooligan. And I think that probably comes from Bronca. And then we've got the screeching PTA helicopter parents brandishing standardized tests in one hand and razor claws in the other, which I think is both Queens and Brooklyn that focus on achievement and excellence.
1: And family, but in the weirdest way, but also in the way that is, I want better for my children than I had.
0: It is a sight to behold, and you are just glad that they're on your side.
1: I think that there is... A good amount of dread built up in how in this mystery of how really is going to overtake New York and then just casually end the universe. I think that that was well done. It's not such a deep and frightening experience for me to read, but I see how it would be that way to experience.
0: Yeah. And it's also really interesting when you think about what all of this represents in our real world. So the whole thing ends with evil defeated for now. It's been expelled from Manhattan Island and the Associated Boroughs, but it still has an anchor in Staten Island. So we're left with this uneasy truce for now. And that brings us to the coda, which is... It's a Beach Day episode.
1: I love it. It's delightful. It feels like Steven Universe in the best way possible.
0: It really does. And this is also another one, just like the prologue, this is from the perspective of New York, the primary. And his authorial narrative voice is unique and fun. I love it. He's got some sass to him. Yes. It's not that he doesn't feel fear. It's that he doesn't let that fear control him. And he expresses healthy skepticism of other people, but also openness to see what'll happen.
1: Almost like he doesn't think his life changed, but it definitely has. We've got little vignettes of all of the action going around the beach. We've got descriptions of how Vinita is afraid of any warm current coming up against her leg because she thinks that it's somebody's pee or (laughs) feeling like she's going to be stung by a man o' war if she feels anything against her skin.
0: A fist just touched my leg. (laughs) And
1: then you've got Brooklyn having her kid around and feeling safe bringing her kid around all of them. Like they're, you know, newly minted aunties and uncles.
0: We also get to see that both Padmini and Vinitsa, who quickly became great friends throughout all of this, both continue the tradition of making sure to share the food with everybody else.
1: I love that. I wish I were a little more like, hey, here, let me feed you. It seems like it would be fun, especially if it was like unique stuff and not just chips or something.
0: (laughs) Okay, tangent here. Were you the person every time you were at a work potluck signed up to bring chips?
1: No. No, I was not.
0: I remember I was once on a team back in my days working at the call center where our entire team was the guy who brought chips. Our potlucks were the worst, (laughs) is what I'm trying to say.
1: Did anyone bother to bring dip? No. (laughs) No, see, I'm the person that while I can cook some things, right, I remember things like plates and napkins and cups.
0: Oh, yeah. There was a plate, napkin, and cup guy, too. But, yeah.
1: (laughs) There usually weren't those people at mine. There were people that brought sodas. Let me bring sodas. And that's about it. No, usually I'm the person that brings a crockpot full of something like chili. And sometimes that chili is a little too spicy for most palates.
0: I seem to recall a few DigiPen potlucks like that.
1: There was a whole lot of, this is good, but I can't keep eating it. (laughs) I learned from your dad.
0: You did. It's endearing. The other thing we learn is that the other living cities have called for a summit to discuss how to protect themselves Because one of the things that we've learned over the course of this book is that the infant city mortality rate has grown. I mean, cities have always died in infancy, but they're doing so much more frequently now. And unless they figure out how to combat this threat, there are not going to be any more living cities. And so
1: New York, the avatar who believes he's going to be homeless, even as he has all of his boroughs going to take care of him and probably none of them will let him be homeless or starving, even though apparently he's not supposed to have to eat, but somehow he's going to wind up in Paris. Who's paying for that? Or is he teleporting? I don't know.
0: Well, I mean, he has access to the finances of New York city, whether he chooses to use them or not. And He also has people that will take care of him. I think the thing that really struck me is that New York is always hungry. That idea of hunger for success, for power, for longing, for your dreams, whatever those might be. I think that's something that is woven into a lot of New York stories. And so that, I think, is why New York always has his tummy rumbling a little bit.
1: There's also a little bit of melancholy in the parting between him and Sao Paulo. I think New York really, really enjoyed being with Sao Paulo in all senses of the term being with. There's something about almost a friendship breakup. And there's also a little bit of a lover's breakup going on. And meanwhile, there's Manny, who is making New York uncomfortable in his intensity
0: manny is an intense person
1: (laughs) i don't know though if you've ever had someone that you didn't reciprocate a crush towards crushing on you in a way that was so obvious that you even noticed because like i know sometimes people flirt and the object of their flirtations doesn't i say object but they don't notice or they don't understand that they're being flirted with but there are some times where you can just catch a person staring at you and being rather clingy towards you in that way. Have you ever felt that? No. Okay. Just being constantly stared at can get you kind of the hackles raised and, and kind of go, I don't, I don't know about this. I, 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 I don't know about this. But there's the added wrinkle of New York knowing what Manny's thinking.
0: I think also part of it is that there's a part of New York that isn't really sure that he's worthy of it.
1: I think there's that, but I also think that there's a part of Manny, especially if he was military, who might not be terribly accepting of himself feeling feelings for another man.
0: It's possible, although I've kind of gotten the sense that he's comfortable with that.
1: It really depends. I don't know. A lot of times there is a self-loathing aspect in people who are closeted who don't want to admit that they are closeted. And then when they are in a relationship with another person, especially an out person, if there was already a propensity towards domestic violence, there will definitely be instances of domestic violence.
0: I get that. I just don't think that Manny is closeted.
1: Depends on who you're talking about him being around. That's fair. Like, there is this idea that once you come out, you're out. The thing is, though, you have to keep coming out because the assumption is straight. The assumption is cis. You have to keep correcting this assumption. And it can get tiresome and hard to compel yourself to do. And you can get resentful of the people that you have to keep coming out to.
0: I get it. So ultimately, this little coda ends with the primary avatar of New York finally letting the other bros care for him in their own way.
1: Some of them want to feed him. Some of them want to protect him.
0: Some want to make sure he's got a place to stay. Some want to make sure that he knows he's welcome and that he doesn't have to be alone. And this parting between New York and Sao Paulo is... It's gentle, like Sao Paulo recognizes that his time with New York is done and he's always going to look back favorably on it and he doesn't at all regret it. He just knows that it's time to move on for both of them. He has his own duties and New York has his own duties as well to the people who live with him.
1: It's like Sao Paulo has redirected New York back towards his burrows, his family.
0: Yeah. And it's it's gentle, it's kind, it's sweet. And I think it's one of the things that makes Sao Paulo an interesting character. So that concludes our discussion of the city we became.
1: I would love to let you all know that the next book is coming out this year.
0: Yep. That'll be coming out in November.
1: I'm so excited.
0: Same here. So with that, it is time for me to provide this week's recommended thing. So for my recommended thing, the final recommended thing of this little interlude, I thought it would be appropriate to pick another multiversal tale. So I picked the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once by the directing duo known as the Daniels. This is a very difficult film to describe for one thing. Yes. Um...
1: (laughs) If you've seen it, tell us how you'd describe it, because, oh my goodness, it's a trip.
0: And it's even more fun if you go in cold. Yes. So I'm not really going to try and describe it so much as just give a hearty recommendation of it. It's about family, love, nihilism, the immigrant experience, finding meaning, and learning to truly see other people. Just... Whatever you do, whatever you, you think it is, just understand that it's so much more because it's everything and it's everywhere and it's all at once.
1: This is the kind of film that I don't think we could watch with your mom.
0: Probably not.
1: Because it's one of those that I have a feeling would be, hey, wait, 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 what's happening? Hey, wait, 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 wait. I don't understand. What? Why is this person doing this? Wait, 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 wait. wait. What happened?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the acting is heartbreakingly good. Oh, my goodness. The visuals are wildly inventive. And the relationships are achingly realized. For all of its bizarro elements, at its heart, it's about people and their connections. And the way that we can take care of one another and see one another as complex beings. So like if you've ever daydreamed about what your life might have been like, had you made different choices or thought about the myriad futures ahead of you, this is a film that's going to scratch that itch. I really won't say more because you all deserve to experience the full gamut of surprise in this film. It's bonkers, it's madcap, and it's beautiful. So yeah, go see everything, everywhere, all at once. It's available on streaming as a rental, so pick it up. You can also rent it on Blu-ray, and I think it might be in a few smaller theaters as well. But, yeah, it's great.
1: I know. I kind of want to watch it with other people now. It's a film that invites multiple rewatches.
0: It really does. Again, it's a visual treat. It's an emotional treat, and it's just fun.
1: I think that that is a wonderful choice.
0: Thank you. So with that, it's your turn for the quote of the week.
1: Alright, like I said before, New York, the avatar of New York, is really one of my favorite characters in this whole thing. And so, my quote is partially from him. It could be worse. Yeah, we could all be getting gnawed to pieces by non-Euclidean dingos. I get that. I love that. And honestly, I'm gonna say... That that might be my view of the last few years. It could be worse. But the absurdity of how worse it would have to be in comparison.
0: Yeah. The floor is much lower than you realize. That's a good quote. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me.
1: Thank you for potting with
0: me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone.
1: Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone when we return to the wise man's fear. I have no idea where we are in that
0: book. We're at chapter 67 through whatever. We need to...
1: (laughs) Okay. Behind the scenes quick break. We are going to go figure out how many chapters we're going to read next time and let you know in a half a second. And we're back. The power of editing means that you didn't have to listen to us mumble.
0: <laughs> thank you for joining us for our little break from the Kingkiller Chronicle. Next week, we're going to dive back into Quoth's adventures in Ventus with chapters 67 through 69. Nice. Of the wise man's fear through the lens of opportunistic altruism.
1: We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music.
0: And many thanks to N.K. Jemisin and Patrick Rothfuss for creating the worlds that we've enjoyed exploring.
1: Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough.
0: And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough.
1: If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash WaystonePod.
0: And as always, here's to one more day above the roses.
1: To one more day above the roses. Ding. Ding! Good job. Great gerb.
0: Great gerb. Hmm. Let me just uh,
1: try to remove the froggy from your throat.
0: Wet my whistle.
1: That sounds dirty.
0: No, it isn't. What's dirty about a whistle? Sometimes it needs wetting.
1: That sounds dirtier.
0: Look, that's more about your mind than mine. Look. Look. <laughs> Look.